This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Podcast. And today I'm very happy to announce that we are not focusing on Europe, but someplace a bit farther away, India. Yes, we're taking a trip to the military culture of the Indian army in, uh, in the First World War. And I have to say, I was uh, very happy that we got the chance to talk about this because my great-grandfather was in the British army and served in India for some time before World War I. So uh, a little bit of a personal connection there to some extent. Yeah, I also thought it was pretty fascinating. Um, our interview guest, Kate Imey, briefly mentions the the jihad that was declared by the Ottoman Sultan um, right uh, I think at the end of 1914 and there is a, a bit of an that was an interesting PR move uh, as I would call it uh, the Germans had or the central powers had quite a few of these um, and it's a bit understudied uh, one of the outcomes of this PR strategy to basically convince the Muslim subjects from the colonial powers uh, from France and Britain, that the central powers, uh, and especially the Ottoman Empire, were the true allies of the Muslims, uh, was that the POWs from Muslim countries were treated better. And one manifestation of that was that near Berlin, in a place called Wünsdorf, uh, the first mosque uh, ever built on German soil was built in a POW camp. There's still a mosque street there today. Uh, I don't think many people know actually why it's called that way. So, um, wheels within wheels, and uh, without further ado, let's have a look, no, let's have a listen at our interview with Kate Imey about the British Indian Army. So today, I'm very pleased to welcome our next guest to the Great War Podcast to discuss her forthcoming book. Um, she is Assistant Professor of History, Dr. Kate Imey, who is also the author of a book by the name of Faithful Fighters. Identity and Power in the British Indian Army. That is a cool sounding title, I have to say. So I'm, I'm excited to speak with you today. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kate. Uh, thanks so much, Jesse and Flo and uh, everyone involved for, for the invitation. I really appreciate speaking with you today. All right. So let's jump into the thick of things with uh, our usual icebreaker question here. How did you get interested in this topic of the Indian army and let's say the sort of military culture uh, surrounding it? And what was your objective with uh, Faithful Fighters? What are you trying to achieve in this book? Thanks for that question. My origin story as a scholar uh, actually began at the United States Air Force Academy, um, which is a military college in the United States. And 
I only stayed there one year, but in that year, I had a lot of really interesting experiences and found that religion was actually quite central to how the military academy functioned. Uh, in fact, if you were to like look up images of the campus, one of the most iconic parts of that campus is the Cadet Chapel. And the Cadet Chapel is not just home to, you know, various denominations of Christian service, but there's also rooms for Buddhist worship, for Muslim worship. Um, and so like this one space was religiously very diverse, despite having uh, a kind of singular title of being a chapel, which has a very Christian connotation. And I found that the best way to get out of unwanted physical or military activity, uh, and this is not unique to me, many cadets found this, uh, was to have a religious reason for getting out of those. And so that got me thinking about the relationship between military service and faith from a relatively young age. Then as I moved through my undergraduate and, and graduate coursework, I was really interested in, in digging into specific contexts in which religion and the military was foundational to the organization and operation of these forces and realized that the British Empire in India really embodies religious plurality and diversity and especially the recruitment of people based on religious and ethnic identities. And I felt that this could really speak to not just British and South Asian audiences, but globally as well, uh, especially as we see, you know, rising currents of Hindu nationalism, uh, international conversations about pan-Islamic activism and the relationship between Islam uh, and governance and politics. And then, of course, in the United States, the relationship between uh, Christianity and, and politics um, is really foundational and central to current political debate. So I felt that this would have global resonance. All right. That answer was so jam-packed with stuff. We have two things. One is a plan for a standalone podcast series based on that. And the other is, uh, yeah, I don't know what, where to go from here. There's so much in there. Let's start maybe with a couple of terms uh, that you introduced right away at the beginning of the book. You write that the British authorities tried to militarize and racialize Indians in order to secure their loyalty. So can you kind of break that down a little bit for us? What does that mean? Absolutely. I want to say, you know, first of all, that there wasn't a kind of uniform way that British officials approach things. You know, individuals certainly had their own interpretations and often disagreements amongst themselves for how to recruit soldiers and what soldiers made the best type of soldiers. But a central institutional uh, a point of consistency was the desire to create and cultivate the most loyal group of soldiers, and particularly to do so through ethnic and religious difference. And so to try to understand, okay, we have religious plurality in South Asia, which group will be the most loyal? And the roots of this in part are the rebellion of 1857, which was, you know, a hundred years after British uh, East India Company officials first started recruiting South Asian soldiers. And this rebellion has been remembered in India and in Britain as having religious causes, particularly the issue of greasing cartridges, um, which, you know, if greased with pig fat was uh, a religious um, kind of mandate or ban for Muslims. And it, with cow grease, it was a problem for Hindus. 
And that's become the, the dominant narrative of this rebellion. Um, scholars, of course, know that it was much more complex, that there were desires to revive the Mughal Empire, that soldiers were protesting um, you know, the, the mandate on overseas service, their decreasing pay, the recent conquests of various regions around India. So for soldiers, it was a very complex issue, but the memory of it was religiously rooted. And so British officers often wanted to say, who can be the most loyal? Which soldiers are the least likely to rebel? And how can we use understandings of religious difference to cultivate a loyal core of soldiers? And in popular memory, there were two groups that were especially associated with loyalty. Uh, the Sikhs are perhaps the most prominently uh, remembered for being a community religiously defined that had loyal ties. And then the Nepali Gurkhas uh, recruited from Nepal. Um, the name itself derived from a, a pre-colonial formation called Gorkha, which was an independent kingdom. They were also regarded as being some of the most loyal and steadfast soldiers, in part because British officers believed that they cared less about caste uh, and, you know, the Hindu caste system than Indian Hindu soldiers. And so these were really the foundational soldiers that fought on the British side in the rebellion of 1857, again, for a whole slew of complex reasons, but in the institutional memory, they were the most loyal. Therefore, they were the most likely to remain loyal because of their religious beliefs. Okay, and that sort of bleeds into our next question, which is from a viewer of ours. And he's asking not directly about loyalty, but about fighting qualities of different groups of Indian soldiers in the eyes of the British, although perhaps there's an overlap. Um, what did they think of the fighting qualities of the Indian troops? And did they feel that some were better quality soldiers than others? And I feel a bit of a martial races theory coming on here. Absolutely. Uh, the pre-1857 military was already borrowing from a lot of Mughal Empire recruiting practices uh, and the belief that there were certain communities that were most martial. Um, and so this martial races idea is that, yeah, you can identify people based on their region of origin, their ethnicity, their religious difference, and they're the ones that will make up the best soldiers, um, which does kind of feed into that, the previous question about the, the racialization of faith, which is that, you know, it's not just about, you know, religion being something that you choose to believe in, but it's something that's fundamentally attached to your identity, your birth, uh, and your sense of, of belonging. Uh, so with the uh, with regard to the fighting qualities, the Sikhs and, and the Nepali Gurkhas are, again, probably the best example because in very different ways, many British leaders believed that they were the strongest and hardiest soldiers. For Sikhs, the narrative tended to be that because many of them were recruited from the Punjabi countryside in northwestern India and ate wheat-based uh, food diets, that this made them big tall, strong men who could withstand the rigors of overseas service. Um, however, for the Nepali Gurkhas, it's, it's essentially the exact opposite argument, which is that they tended to be recruited with a smaller bodily stature and they were, they were perceived to be like densely packed little uh, men who could just like withstand the rigors of service because of their smaller stature. And so these were the, the kind of institutional racial concepts that British leaders often perpetuated and in some cases soldiers bought into them and in some cases soldiers rejected them. 
for a whole host of reasons, uh, especially, you know, the kind of racist notion that there is one type of Sikh that looks a particular way. Or there is one type of Nepali Gurkha that le- looks a certain way um, is, of course, far more complicated. But for a lot of British leaders, they saw these men these ways. Most British leaders, when they heard that they wanted that they were going to serve in India, said, oh, I really hope I get to serve with Sikhs. And so all of this influenced how they perceived and understood these soldiers' fighting qualities. Right. And uh, our next viewer question sort of piggybacks on that uh, once again, because this viewer is asking about where the Indian troops were recruited from. Now, it's clear thus far that, you know, the British think that there are certain groups that are better suited to fighting. Did they then sort of disproportionately recruit uh, from those groups or and, and what about the, the Hindus and Muslims? We haven't really talked about them. Yeah, that's another really great question that is complicated and and interesting in terms of differences over time. So in peacetime, there were certainly, you know, overt preferences for recruiting regions. So um, by 1914, when the the First World War breaks out, about 75% of soldiers are recruited from the Punjab province in India the Northwestern border region, uh, which had been formed as a Northwestern frontier province at the time, uh, and then from Nepal. So you have 75% of the soldiers recruited from these very specific regions of India. And within that, there's also an emphasis on particular villages. So there would often be villages where um, veterans and their families would settle. And then a lot of times that would be the first place that military recruiters would go to try and induce more soldiers. Um, one thing that's really fascinating, I think, is that when most people think of martial races and military recruiting, they think of the six. And the you know one reason for that is because they were the most disproportionately recruited. Uh, they were 20% of an army despite being less than 1% of the population of India. But Muslims were, you know, also disproportionately recruited and were really the, the true backbone of the Indian army. Um, they made up between 30 and 35% of Indian army soldiers. So just with uh, Muslims and with Sikhs together, you have over half of, of the military. And then, of course, the Nepali Gurkhas make up another massive percentage of that. And so that's the the tendency of peacetime. And then certainly we see during the First World War, um, this intensifies. And so the Punjab was hit really, really hard uh, by local leaders and by uh, government of India officials who said, hey, Punjab is where we get our soldiers, hit that region hard, recruit every man you can. And there were um, incentives to village leaders for recruiting those men, uh, you know, whether they wanted to be recruited or not. But of course, as the war continues, as you have manpower shortages, these things break down in certain ways. So you start to see recruitment of men from uh, other regions of India, the United Provinces, which is contemporary uh, Uttar Pradesh, was another region of significance, but you also see recruitment outside of the the kind of northern India region. Um, And this will ebb and flow, you know, during and then certainly after the First World War as well. And was there a difference between the 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 ways that different regions were governed because some were directly governed by the British and some were sort of indirectly governed through local princes. How did that work for recruiting? Yeah, interestingly, the the so-called native or princely states, uh, which had the local rulers still intact or, you know, still part of a hereditary line that predated the rebellion of 1857 in most cases, they had their own separate way of recruiting soldiers. So most of those 
leaders would have their own forces. And so when it came time to serve in the First World War, they were generally assembled under the umbrella of Imperial Service Troops. Um, and there's a really great memoir uh, by a soldier named Amar Singh, um, and it has been edited by um, Suzanne Rudolph uh, and you know various other scholars who look at his memoirs and diaries, which he kept over a number of, of years and decades continuously. And they talk about what it meant to be an imperial service soldier in one of these independent states and what that really meant. Because as you suggest, um, British rule is, is looming very large and most of these soldiers are still having to interface with and in some cases take orders from British leaders anyway, despite being uh, part of a, a nominally independent force. And so that, that certainly complicated those soldiers' experiences. But at the same time, because the British were so uh, powerful, they were the dominant force in South Asia during the First World War, uh, they, they tended to be um, kind of folded into British command structure. So let's turn back now to religion, which is a topic that you got into uh, a couple of answers ago. Um, how does religion fit into the military culture of the Indian army? Religion was absolutely foundational to every single aspect of the Indian Army, not only for soldiers who were serving and while they were serving, but also for how the rest of India, Indian civilians, understood and engaged with the Indian Army. And so this manifests in a variety of ways. Recruiting, as we've discussed, was, was absolutely part of this, to the point that If you were a Sikh and you wanted to be recruited as a Sikh and to serve with Sikhs, you had to look a certain way. And so specifically, Sikhs who wanted to be recruited had to perform an identity that was associated with the Khalsa or the elect, which was a warrior fraternity uh, founded many centuries before British presence that identified five markers of identity that would mark you as a member of the Khalsa, the elect. Um, and so it was a, a, not a, an umbrella for Sikh identity to have the uncut hair, um, carry a sword, you know, those kind of prominent markers that have been associated with Sikh identity in the 21st century. There was actually a difference. And there were many Sikhs who didn't ascribe to these five external markers of identity. But if you wanted to be recruited in the army, you had to. And in some cases, soldiers who didn't, you know, who cut their hair, for example, would actually be put through a course of instruction to ensure that they knew the importance of these five markers of identity. Um, they would participate in ceremonies where they would uh, have to drink from a common uh, glass um, where they were basically declaring that they rejected caste differences. And so this influenced recruiting, but it also influenced how soldiers served and where they served and their experience of service during the war. So during the First World War, food was a really important issue. Uh, so thinking again about British institutional perceptions about the causes of 1857, religious mandates about diet and caste uh, were absolutely central. And so for a lot of British leaders, they said, hey, the best way to keep our soldiers loyal during the First World War is make sure their diets and their religious beliefs are preserved and well-maintained. Uh, so prominent examples will include ensuring that Muslim soldiers had halal, access to halal um, prepared foods, making sure that uh, Sikh and Hindu food was prepared separately from Muslim food. And so these were some of the ways that the British 
widely advertised what they were doing to ensure soldiers' um, devotional cultures were preserved, maintained, and respected. Now, of course, the lived reality was very different. Um, soldiers who are serving in places like Gallipoli or who are ser serving in the trenches, you know, don't always get access to clean, well-prepared food. Um, and so there, become, there became other ways to sell the idea that British leaders were doing all they could. Um, and so another prominent example comes from the case of Nepali Gurkhas. So as uh, the citizens of an independent nation, they had the prime minister of Nepal advocating on their behalf and ensuring that they were doing everything, ensuring that the British were doing everything that they could to preserve and maintain these soldiers' beliefs. Um, and so the idea was that all Nepali soldiers would have to participate in a mandatory purification ceremony before they entered back into uh, Nepal. And this was rooted in uh, a Hindu understanding of caste, which is if you cross the black waters, you were inherently uh, impure and you needed to prove that you had maintained your caste status. And so this ended up becoming bureaucratized, where all soldiers and their officers would basically sign a little statement saying, yes, all of their caste prescriptions were adhered to. They were all sent to Northern India to participate in this mandatory ceremony um, and then given a certificate that says, yes, they, they did it. Um, and you know, this was whether they wanted to or not, whether they were Hindu or not. So a lot of Nepali soldiers who were Buddhist, for example, had to do this anyway. Um, this did not apply to Indian Hindus. So it applied, you know, religion shaped so many different aspects of soldier service uh, across the board in terms of recruiting and in terms of their day-to-day -day life in, the, in, in service. Yeah, religion, the military, and bureaucracy. It sounds like the absolute perfect storm. Potent cocktail. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, that reminded me, by the way, there, just in case our, our viewers are interested in the topic generally, there's quite an interesting First World War novel called Across the Black Waters, which, uh, which I read a couple of years ago and I enjoyed. Um, Very good. Highly recommended. Yeah, let's, let's flip on the other side of the coin here a little bit. We talked... Um, I think mostly started with the British side and then talked about its impact on, uh, on Indians. Uh, let's uh, flip it around. How did the Indian soldiers respond to the British, for lack of a better word, uh, categorization of them? So just as we saw with British officials, there's internal squabbling, internal debating and differences of opinion about what they should actually do to retain loyalty, to recruit the best soldiers. We see immense diversity among the soldiers themselves about how to respond to these British you know, mandates or ideas about what their faith means and how it should play a role in their military service. Some soldiers absolutely leaned into this and encouraged you know, especially if they were from one of these veteran communities, encouraged other men to, from a young age, practice the forms of identity and the forms of religious practice that they knew would suit them well for military service. Um, but in the 20th century, we see some interesting shifts happening, especially as anti-colonial activity intensifies. And a lot of soldiers will, in a variety of ways, critique and push back against military identities and limitations on those identities. So another great example comes from the Sikh soldiers who are, you know, mandated if they want to be recruited to perform the markers of the Khalsa. One of the markers of the Khalsa is carrying a, a sword. 
And so what British leaders did, because there was uh, an India-wide ban and limitation on who could bear arms, who could uh, carry weapons of any kind, they said that, hey, if you're a Khalsa, you know, if you're a Sikh and you want to be recruited, you can just wear a little pin on your turban that looks like a sword. And that can be a way for you to perform the identity and be recruited, but also not be threatening to us. Um, And so a lot of Sikhs in the early 20th century are like, wait a minute, we're disproportionately recruited. You like us because of the performance of this warrior identity, and yet you don't actually let us carry swords. Like that doesn't make sense. Uh, And so a lot of Sikh activists within and beyond the army will push back against this and insist, yes, we should be able to carry swords, Uh, And then that inspired a whole range of debates about how long the swords could be and what was threatening. And this was something that lasted, that, you know, really started before the First World War, became a major issue while the war was going on and continued to be an uh, an issue when the war uh, was over, especially in the aftermath of the Amritsar massacre, which happened in 1919, which witnessed uh, a British officer giving a command to South Asian troops to open fire on uh, a crowd that was protesting Uh, British economic and political restrictions. And so after this massacre, which happened, by the way, in Amritsar, which is uh, a city of religious significance for the Sikhs, uh, a lot of Sikh men within and beyond the army said, all right, now's the time. Like we should band together. We should protest British restrictions on our identities. And they focused a lot of their attention, not only on bearing swords publicly, but also reoccupying religious spaces, which were uh, known as gurdwaras, uh, which are like Sikh temples, uh, essentially. We're going to occupy these spaces, which for many years have been run by British appointed officials. We're going to reclaim these spaces for the community and mark ourselves in different ways so that people know that we're affiliated with this group. So one of those markers would be carrying a long sword. Another one would be wearing uh, like a dark turban, uh, like a black turban in most cases. And so men in the Indian army would actually start wearing black turbans to show that they aligned themselves with this movement, which had some anti-colonial undertones. So that's one uh, of many ways that soldiers kind of pushed back against the limitations and the restrictions and the efforts to control these identities and really shape them in their own way. Okay, yeah. Here again, we're sort of seeing the connections between some of these um, different ideas. What else can we say about the independence movement in the army? So obviously it has some impact if we have some people who are in the army participating in these types of actions that you mentioned that, you know, visually demarcating themselves that way. How can we, what's, what's the big picture with the independence movement and the Indian army? So for me, the big picture is that we can't understand anti-colonialism and Indian nationalism without understanding the army. Um, and of course, this is rooted in part in the 1857 rebellion, this, this massive iconic moment of the military being really central to anti-colonial activism that shapes a lot of British recruiting uh, for the late 19th century and the efforts to try to cultivate loyalty in the army. And I think because of this idea of martial races and because many soldiers did benefit materially from their service in terms of becoming landowners or becoming political representatives um, for, you know, as the British give slow concessions to Indian leaders to have a political voice. And because the Indian National Congress, which dominated a lot of 
um, Indian nationalist uh, thought from the 1880s onward was dominated by high caste Hindus who were generally not recruited in the army. There, there tends to be an underlying assumption that the army is, you know, made up of devoted, loyal soldiers who hated anti-colonialism, and then anti-colonialism was led by high caste Hindus who had nothing to do with the army. And my research shows that it's actually the, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. Soldiers were integrated into various strands of anti-colonial activism you know, from the 1857 uh, rebellion and beyond. And this meant that soldiers were always very mindful of what loyalty meant and of being involved or included in anti-colonial activism. In the 1880s, there were examples where South Asian soldiers tried to ally with Irish nationalists and Irish soldiers to try and foment a rebellion. Um, and so by the 20th century, you know, there's already this, this lasting culture of, hey, we're, we're still Indians. We are Indians as well as being um, soldiers. So I think the Indian nationalist movement is absolutely related to what we see happening in the army. Soldiers themselves are always mindful about critiquing their own service. They're advocating for themselves. They're advocating for one another. And so when things happen that tremendously impact you know, not only their life and livelihood, but that of their families and communities, they're always interested. And uh, one example of this is in uh, 1907, there was a massive famine in uh, Punjab, which was a, a huge recruiting ground for a lot of these Indian soldiers. And so they start to form international networks. They uh, reach out to a lot of their, their relatives and extended family members, some of whom have migrated to North America, uh, including the United States and Canada. And in particular, this is the, the period in which we see the formation of the Ghadar or mutiny movement in North America, which has the explicit purpose of trying to stir up rebellion within the Indian army. And so soldiers are part of this, uh, and this crosses religious boundaries. So you have Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs who are all part of these anti-colonial movements. And these, in many cases, gain momentum during the First World War. So the Ghadar movement will have tentacles that influence uh, a mutiny in Singapore in 1915, led by Indian soldiers working in consultation with global anti-colonial activists across South and Southeast Asia. Uh, it will also reverberate for pan-Islamic movements that are gaining momentum during the First World War and in its aftermath. So there will be a, a famous call for jihad, for example, that comes from the Ottoman Empire, which has a really rich and complex uh, history that I think has been uh, often misrepresented. Uh, so Mustafa Eksakal's work is great to pursue if you're interested in that question of jihad. But for Indian soldiers, it, they reacted to this in a variety of ways. The vast majority of Indian soldiers continued to serve throughout the war without issue, but some said, yeah, I believe that the, the British are trying to force us as Muslim soldiers to go and kill other Muslims in Muslim holy lands or in that area. And that's a problem. Um, so in a whole variety of ways, Indian soldiers were central to anti-colonial plots and nationalist aspirations. Uh, it's really only in the interwar period that we see British officials through the creation of military colleges and academies ensuring that soldiers are being kept as separate from civilians and civilian movements uh, as much as possible.
Okay, that is uh, very interesting stuff, I have to say. Um, for our last question, this is another viewer question, and we're going to go in a bit of a different direction to something a bit more tangible on the ground, so to speak. Um, this viewer is from the Balkan region, so he's very curious about it, and he asks, what was the role of the Indian troops in the 1918 offensive in the Balkans, the one going up based at Salonika that's uh, aimed against the Bulgarians at the end? So this is, it's such a great question. And the answer to this is very complex. So the most immediate answer is that, you know, by the time of 1918 uh, and the offensive in the Balkans, this is being primarily guided and directed by uh, French, French colonial uh, and Serbian troops. Um, and so they're really the dominant forces on the ground. You have a minor presence of some Indian Imperial Service troops. You have some minor presence of Indian cavalry. But for the most part, uh, the vast majority of Indian soldiers are stationed elsewhere by 1918. Um, they had served in literally every single field of battle of the First World War. They, were, they arrived in the Western Front in September of 1914 and participated in some of the most horrific battles there. They participated in the notorious campaigns in East Africa, which were, you know, actually outlasted the war on the Western Front in campaigns against the Ottoman Empire, particularly um, protecting the Suez Canal in Egypt uh, and then pursuing uh, and maintaining the conquest of Palestine uh, and Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq. So the vast majority of Indian soldiers by 1918 are focused elsewhere, although there are still, you know, lingering uh, a lingering presence of Indian soldiers in literally every single um, corner of the war. All right. Um, thanks so much, Kate, for sharing with us today about the book. Um, if our viewers are now, now their curiosity has been piqued and they want to like sink their teeth into the topic for a few hundred pages, um, can you tell them where is the best place for them to get their hands on Faithful Fighters? So the absolute best place to get a hold of it is on the Stanford University Press website, which is sup.org. And you can either click on, uh, this is very self-promotional, so apologize, I apologize in advance, but you can either click on the award winners um, icon that is on the front page, because um, mine is the, the first one that'll show up there, or you can just go in their little search box and put in Faithful Fighters. Uh, and if you use the code IME20, you can get 20% off that purchase. So hooray, a little discount. Um, and then of course you can also access Faithful Fighters through Amazon, uh, various international bookstores, uh, and of course the Amazon affiliates around the world. All right, uh, that sounds good. I, I'm always in favor of discounts, I'm telling you. <laughs> so that's, um, that's good news. Thanks again, Kate, for joining us today. I really uh, enjoyed our talk. Thanks so much for the invitation. It was great speaking with you.